this evening about the letting go in generosity and the generosity of letting go. Essentially, it's about letting go. What you may have noticed over the last days or weeks is pretty much the essence of the path. Learning to let go. When we go on this path, initially when we step on the the first brick, we don't realize that letting go means letting go of everything. We... uh, would like to compromise. Well, I'd like to hang on to a couple of my beliefs or <laughs> my car. <laughs> but uh, all of the baggage goes overboard on the path. That's both the horrible news and the good news. Because when all the baggage goes overboard, the boat sails lighter in the water, you know. So letting go. It said that generosity, letting go, giving in love and compassion was the first perfection of the Buddha. It's also said in the scriptures that there are really wonderful rewards for generosity. Abundance in your life and wonderful deep relationships as a result of practicing generosity. It's really also talked about in the scriptures as one of the ultimate realities, one of the wholesome mental factors, non-greed. It's described as one of the three pillars of the Dharma itself. So it's very important, generosity, one of the three pillars of the Dharma. Giving out of compassion and love, giving freely, Letting go. The other two pillars are moral restraint, refraining from killing, harming other beings, being careful and wise with speech, refraining from taking what doesn't belong to us, Refraining from the use of the unwise use of intoxicants and using our sexuality wisely and in a non harming way. Moral restraint. The third pillar of the Dharma, first generosity, the, sec- the second uh, moral restraint. The third pillar is meditation itself. Concentration 
and mindfulness. Now, one of the things about generosity, the opposite of which is greed, is that it's very difficult. It seems very to be a very difficult practice for many of us. It isn't easy to practice generosity, although one may think so offhandedly. It's said that there are three types of generous people, generous givers. First type being those who are the beggarly givers. I love that word, beggarly. The beggarly giver is the one who thinks a lot about giving before giving. Let's see, what's the tax deduction (laughs) on this? Can I really afford this? Well, if I give that much, then I won't have enough for the trip to Florida. Well, on and on. Beggarly giving, giving that's tempered with caution and quite a bit of holding on. So it isn't really a freely given gift. It isn't a real letting go. It's a conditioned letting go. Then the second kind of of generosity is the friendly giver. It's a little warmer. The friendly giver is willing to share what he or she has freely. Come to dinner. Come eat what I have on the table. Here, you need a jacket? Use mine. The friendly giver doesn't consider the possibility of not giving freely what he or she uses himself or herself. And then there's the, the third kind of generosity. It's called kingly or queenly giving. I think there's a, one of the tales of the early, one of the previous incarnations of the Buddha is often used as an example. I think it's, I don't know how valuable it is, it's so outrageous, but here it is anyway. (laughs) One of his previous lives, the Buddha was out walking in the forest and he came to a cliff and looked down and at the foot of the cliff there was a lioness with her cubs. And the lioness is starving, obviously, in dire straits. Ribs are showing, respiratory heaving, near death. And the poor cubs are trying to nurse, but there's nothing there because the lioness has so little energy. So the Buddha leaps off of the cliff and kills himself in front of the lioness so that she can have his body to eat and get strong to, f- to feed her cubs. It's given as a 
an example of kingly giving. <laughs> I doubt that there are many of us who can attain to that. The starving lioness. Recently, a very dear friend of mine died of uh, prostate cancer, and I had the the honor of being with him quite a bit of time during the dying process. It was a very moving experience for me because he was a practitioner of this practice, went to many retreats like this one, sat in silence many hours, and his practice really showed itself in the last days of his life. Uh, it was a very it was a, an honor and a pleasure to be near him because he had reached through mindfulness such a state of equanimity and open-heartedness that he literally glowed although he, his body was racked with with horrors hemorrhaging and wasting away, meant much pain. It was though he existed outside of it all. Much of the time he was present with us, would open his eyes and say, I love you, and go back into silence. He was a a social friend of mine mostly, although there, there was a time when he had been a client and turned into a friendship. And I liked him very much. I liked hanging out with him. He and his wife and my partner and myself often spent weekends at uh, uh, his cabin in the, in the Sierras and had dinners together. But I never knew something about him. I knew he was a good lawyer and that he seemed to be very successful. But I, I, I was asked by his, his widow to speak the eulogy at his, his um, memorial service. James was there. And I was just amazed. I had no idea about my friend. Hundreds and hundreds of people came. It was held in a vast hall, a Longshoreman's Hall, and in Oakland. People of all kinds, blue-collar workers, very poor people, very rich people, well-dressed. The Attorney General of the state was there and spoke in his honor. It was amazing. And as I listened to the people speak of their relationship with my friend, I realized he had been this generous, kingly giver for years and years, and I, I knew nothing about that part of his life. The kingly giver has the knack of doing it invisibly. Doesn't make a big show out of that giving. And my, and my friend Manny was like that. Even his 
dying process was a generous giving to those of us around him because he radiated equanimity and compassion and love and had no fear and told us that it was possible to do this without fear. Marvelous experience. But there's another kind of generosity. What we've spoken of so far is the generosity that has to do with giving to others. And there's also a generosity that has to do with giving to yourself, being generous with yourself. And we call it letting go. Letting go. Letting go to lighten the load. Letting go of concepts. Letting go of grasping mind that clings out of fear and the need for security, personal security. Letting go of belief systems. Big one. We have so many beliefs that we're not even aware of because they're so conditioned into ourselves. Beliefs about life. Beliefs about what's good and what's bad. Letting go of attitudes toward life, attitudes toward our bodies, attitudes toward food, attitudes toward government, attitudes toward all kinds of institutions, attitudes toward people, being human, mental constructs that we carry with us day by day, year by year, and unless we sit down, as in this practice, and really look very carefully and microscopically, we don't see them these attitudes and beliefs. They're so much of what we identify with as self. We have to let go in being generous to ourselves of the desire for things, the accumulation of wealth, most of which comes from a desire to be protected and to be safe and to have a sense of security in life. We have to let go of, in being generous to ourselves, of ego gratification of many kinds. The need for position and respect, the need for admiration in life, to be admired, even the need to be loved is a concept that weighs us down and determines so much of how we behave and imprisons us all, even the need to be loved. Seems strange to think that generosity toward oneself would be letting go of a need like that, and yet it's a need that drives so many of us into working too hard, trying too hard, having serial relationships that don't make it, or even 
into addiction, misuse of sexuality. It's so common in our society, the need to be loved that comes out of a deep loneliness and sense of disconnection and isolation that goes with being identified with this egoic person here. We all are in one way or another. We need to, in generous, being generous to ourselves, let go of the search for endless pleasure. The search for pleasure. I think the search for pleasure at being a good hedonist has probably determined about 98% of my life. You know, the search for comfort. I have a friend who, not long ago, we were talking about, well, wouldn't it be nice to go out and do some camping? I haven't been camping out in the wilderness in years and years and years. And he said, uh-uh, not unless there's room service. I mean, that, that kind of need that cuts us off from nature and the reality of being an earth-bound creature. And strangely enough, being generous to ourselves entails letting go of the, our attachment to life itself. Our grasping on to vitality and health and life itself, paradoxically, is itself a grasping and a clutching and a leaning forward out of present time. Because in present time, there is no need. In present time, there is no grasping. In real present time, there is no fear or insecurity. All of those very basic needs that I've been describing that we all share are determined actually by our sense of being unsafe not whole, needing to add something to this experience, as though what is isn't enough, as though the experience of everything just as it is isn't possible for us. Letting go out of generosity to ourselves of the attachment to pleasures intellectual and sensual. Pleasures as being a distraction from the real honest considering of our suffering, of our, our longing for wholeness and for connection and for belonging. Not so long ago, my partner, who's a, a real, uh, has become in the last year a real computer nut, uh, bought and brought home a new program to upgrade his iMac. And uh, the program cost $100. It was a, it's a, the latest and the latest and the latest, right? You, if you're really into computers, you need this one. <laughs> according to the Mac world. So he brings us home. And uh, 
installs it in the, I don't know what this means, you know. I, I just do email and word processing it. I don't install or download anything because when I do, everything goes wrong. It's, it's a total disaster. So he installs this new program and the whole thing crashes. He lost his email, he lost his email addresses, he lost access to the internet horrors. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the vibes were so heavy that I thought, uh-oh, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. So I said, let's have dinner. <clears throat> you know, maybe food. So we sit down for dinner, and I'm trying to make conversation. And I could tell he's trying to make conversation too, but his eyes get glazed over and so on. <laughs> and he jumps up from the table, runs in the other room, and starts working on the computer. I thought it crashed. Well, I think I can fix it. And then, no, come on back to dinner. And then 10 more minutes, have a glass of wine. Pretty soon the eyes glaze over again, and he's gone in there again. This went on three or four times, and finally he shouted from the other room, Robert, I can't let go, okay? (laughs) It's a poem called Techno Madness. (laughs) I'm going to kill my computer. AOL is going to die. Wither on the vine. Give up its last gasp attempt to drive me insane. I'm going to get it before it gets me. There's no way some mechanical monster, brain, chaos, frustration master is going to make me as angry as I am. (laughs) Unless I keep going back to its siren call, trying to make the silicone chips smile at me and bow to my innocent desire to play the world's participation game. Well, to hell with progress, to hell with cyberspace, and to hell with Pac Bell, and most of all, most of all, to hell with this need I have to be connected to something that smiles and turns away, leaving only a notice that there is an error in my hard drive. (laughs) I don't need that. I need acceptance. An error in my hard drive. I don't need that. I need acceptance. This business of letting go, the generosity towards self, ourselves, this business of letting go is not easy. You're discovering that in this retreat, as do hundreds and hundreds of other people who come to retreats. We all share that hard work. The business of letting go, it's so easy to say, well, let go. But it doesn't happen that way. The ego, the human ego, this self-person, is in a constant state of anxiety and insecurity. 
Fear lives in the body. Now, I'm not talking pathology or something wrong here. I'm talking about the normal condition that we all live in. The ego self, because it's based upon a misinterpretation of reality, is constantly anxious about its existence. And, and we have to work, as egos, we have to work hard, continuously, to keep the thing together. Almost everything we do, if you really look carefully at your life, everything we do is oriented toward keeping a sense of self, constructing some kind of personage, an image. One of uh, my teachers, Chogyam Trungpa, I've said this, I've remembered this many, many times. It, it comes to me almost daily. He used to say that the whole human personality was built on a layer of basic panic. <laughs> basic panic, he called it. And his teaching was that there isn't any way around it. And if you're going to practice this on this path, eventually you're going to sink into that layer of basic panic because it is what is the foundation of the whole superstructure that we walk around in. Mary talked uh, the other night about uh, how we have these ideas of, of who we are and, and uh, these concepts about reality and we build them into a house and then move in and make our, our home there. This fear, this anxiety, that uh, is, is the kind of a constant buzz, uh, exists in the body as intense sensations of various kinds. So it isn't really a bad thing. It's really a manifestation of life force when you look at it that way. The sensations are sensations of contraction, Sensations of immediacy, pressure, sometimes constriction, and even the sensations that go up, go to make up our, a, a, a sense of presence, can be coming in large part from the experience of a kind of underlying on the edgedness in our existence. The sensations are the outward manifestation of life force, of energy, appearing here, emerging here as this form. And the contractions of that energy happen in patterns, in configurations. And each of us has constructed over a lifetime, at least, our own unique patterns of feeling, our own unique patterns of contracted energy according to what's happened to us in our life. And we tend to identify with those patterns and those feelings of self in the body as being who we are. And as Mary described, then we move in and say, hmm, I'm home, this is me. But it actually isn't our real home. It's an illusionary home. 
holding on to these patterns of being, holding on to the energetic ways that we have constructed ourselves unconsciously and consciously, is, the, is really the suffering that we experience in life. It's the kind of limitation that, and, the, and the, the obstacles that we experience that come up when we try to be free, when we try to get free movement, when we try to find our way out of the, the dilemma that I'm describing, the obstacles are the contractions that we have created in our, in our bodies as the result of trying to be secure, trying to find a safe place. Tell you, I want to tell you a story about a, a friend of mine. I have his permission to tell the story, but not to use his name. And I assured him I wouldn't. But I wouldn't anyway. But um, this is a, a friend that uh, has, is my oldest friend. We met in 1961 when some of you weren't even here on Earth, I think. And uh, we have been pretty steadily friends all these years. In fact, he's a musician that I like to record my poetry with. He's a per master percussionist. And, um, oh, I just gave it away. <laughs> I don't think I can tell the story now. Oh, well. <laughs> He'll forgive me. On Valentine's Day, he just told me this a couple of days ago, we had a good laugh about it. On Valentine's Day, he and his wife of, of I don't know, going on 40 years now, they, this couple is the only couple I know who've been married as long as uh, Sylvia and Seymour have. There aren't many around, actually. They, this couple has, has been a loving couple for over 35 years, as long as I've known them. And I admire their relationship a lot. And, and um, I often think about, oh, how's it going to be when one of them leaves, you know, when one of them dies? But thinking, thinking, thinking. So the, on Valentine's night, they go out for dinner. They have a big dinner, and they come home, and he takes the Viagra. And they have a wonderful lovemaking experience, and, and it's like renewing their relationship. It's wonderful and, and, and loving. <laughs> Afterwards, he gets up to go into the kitchen, and the bottom dropped out, and he almost lost consciousness. Dizzy, everything went black, he fell to the floor, and he thought, well, I had some wine. I, what are those stories about Viagra? If you take it with... Mm, 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 People have died from this, and he started thinking, "Oh, maybe this is it." He's lying on the. Maybe it's coming. Maybe so. He got a little frightened and started to get up and fell back down again, because every time he moved, he started to lose consciousness. And he's lying there, trying to be very calm, and the thought came through his mind: "I wonder how long I." have before I have to let go. (laughs) 
I wonder how long I have before I have to let go. (laughs) There it is right there. So he tells that to his wife and they both just fall out laughing about the way it is, the way we are. We're not going to let go until we have to. And what makes us have to is death, isn't it? Another poem, just to make a point. One of mine also, and it's called um, I Touch My Thigh. I touch my thigh. It isn't young anymore. The flesh is soft and without edges. It's getting ready to dissolve into old age, preparing to fall away from the bone. I don't know what happens to us. We are bright stars, full of brilliance. Then, without notice, we become inhabitants of decaying houses. The transition tests our wisdom. Rising and passing away, expanding and contracting, victims of some universal rule. No apology for all the unmet expectations. I touch my thigh, it's soft and not elastic. I don't remember it to be that way. Something has happened to this poor body. It loses form like fresh-baked bread. It has no respect for my dismay. No escape from liver spots and wrinkles. Joint pains and memory collapses, a part of the common day. This body is getting old. Broken down, weather-washed barns in fields of golden grasses. Old photographs of skinny men in tank tops at the beach. Skeletons in unmarked graves. Time is relentless and flesh is temporary. Everything is coming and going. Here one moment, gone the next. Hmm. So I wanted to go a little further into this business of being generous with ourselves and letting go in the body. Because, as well as in the mind, neurosis manifests in the body. Kind of, let's, let's take a sort of a metaphysical, psychological look at how neurosis happens. <laughs> I had a teacher who said neurosis begins as a whirlpool in space. 
the circular movement in the emptiness of mind. I've noticed as a, as a psychiatrist over the years that most people are neurotic. When I, when I use the word neurosis, I'm not meaning mental illness particularly here. I'm, I'm talking about the kinds of defense mechanisms that we put into place to protect our vulnerability. Look at it this way. All of us in, in early childhood have had some experiences that were painful, range, ranging from outright physical and sexual abuse to emotional abuse to even the simple occurrence of not being seen, not being accepted for who we are in school, in kindergarten, not being understood by a parent. All kinds of abuse that we move through in our growing process, all kinds of wounds are within the psyche, the unconscious of all, all these beings here, all of us. Neurosis forms around a core wound that's felt, but the feelings and the emotional reactions to the, to the hurt are not able to be assimilated by a young mind, a, a, a just forming personality. And so there's this movement of mind, of thought, and images around that core wound as a way of holding it and protecting it from being consciously felt. That movement takes the form in the body of contracted tissues, holding, holding. The circular movement in the mind takes the form in the behavior as re repetition, repetitive behavior that's done unconsciously over and over and over again, you see. So the whole thing is circular and repetitive. I hope that's clear. Some of the, for instance, some of the kinds of uh, defenses that we build are we, we perhaps become compulsive in behavior, tend to repeat the same kinds of behavior over and over and over and over again, as a way of distracting uh, from the pain that's unconscious. Uh, you might call that kind of behavior early spiritual practice, actually, because it's something that you do over and over and over, just like you do watching the breath or saying a mantra. You see, it is, in a way, a spiritual practice. It's a way of surviving. It's a way of coming through the storm. Compulsive behavior can be like washing or continuously or worrying about locked doors or having to set the table in just the precise same way all the time. We all have these little habits. I, I, know, I, I always brush my teeth in the same way. Start on the left side, I've noticed this recently, and then to the right side. And I decided the other day I'm going to do it the other way around. You know, it's hard to do. <laughs> There's the feeling I won't be okay unless I do it the same way. <laughs> you have these too in your life. 
Another kind of defense that we build around the, the core hurt uh, can be psychosomatic preoccupations. You know, you're sitting here and do I feel a pain in that shoulder? Yes, there's a pain in that shoulder. That's definitely a pain in the shoulder. Oh, it, it comes from inside my chest. I can, hmm, yes, it's a pain. I, I should, maybe I should get a chest x-ray. I wonder if the managers would call the doctor for me. Something like that. A preoccupation with, with physical health being worried about it all the time, you see. It's a repetitive kind of thought process that distracts attention away from everything else. Circular, whirlpool. The only, well, there's an upside and a downside to neurosis. The, the downside is that we get identified with it. You know, we get identified with the defense system and consider it to be us and it's tiring and exhausting, and then we start thinking bad things about ourselves because we have to do all this repetitive stuff in order to exist, and it isn't, usually doesn't work totally efficiently. And as we get older, it works less and less efficiently. The wheels start to creak, you know, and, and the bones start to get brittle, and it's harder and harder to keep this neurotic self together and functioning. Another poem, it's called Our Friend Neurosis. Now I'm speaking of, of neurosis from the point of view of giving up, letting go of the defenses as a way of being generous to ourselves. Neurosis bites at your heels it's a reminder that fear is the lifestyle for you. Never forget, you could be abandoned any moment. That little pain in your belly is probably going to require surgery. Everything you've worked for is likely to be meaningless when everybody finds out about your chocolate binges. Maybe your mother did it. It could be the teacher in first grade who made you empty the wastebasket. Every time someone smiles warmly in your direction, some muscle deep in your throat contracts with apprehension. Ah, neurosis is so strong. How could we ever live without it? How could we ever live without it? No drama to mark the boring days. Here's another example of what I mean, and this is really a very graphic example. It's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters, and it's by Portia Nelson. This is the story of a life. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I'm helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. 
I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. <laughs> Starting to be familiar? <laughs> Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. <laughs> See, letting go of all of that stuff. Letting go and being generous in that way to ourselves frees up energy. You can tell, you can see that happen when you're sitting and uh, you notice a contraction in your body and you point your attention there and it softens and dissolves and immediately there's a rush and a flow of warmth and, and energy that becomes available to you that was tied up in holding the contraction. So this whole idea of being generous is energizing and enlivening, brings abundance and deep relationship with yourself. A few years ago, uh, I was in uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil at a conference, and, and uh, I uh, was a keynote speaker in this conference, of all things, and it was a conference on the future. What, what's, I don't know why we were there to talk about the future, but we were. And I represented the future of the body. <laughs> Bad news, folks. <laughs> well, public speaking is akin to, to dying. Know, it's the fear of public speaking is like the fear of death, if not worse. And the night before this talk, I still hadn't come up with what I wanted to talk about. And it's like, well, let's see, now maybe I could talk about exercise. No, no. Maybe I could talk about diet. No, no, no. That's something in the future. Maybe I could talk about relaxing. Well, I'm not very relaxed. <laughs> and all night long, on and on like that. And so much so that the next morning, this car and driver was sent for me. It was a very posh event. And I was a VIP. And I get in my limousine and go to the conference center. And I still, my mind is still, maybe I could talk about, you know, no, that won't work. <laughs> totally obsessed. Completely neurotic at this point. Knowing I'm neurotic, but you know, like the whole, I can't get out of it. So I think I'm going to have to be neurotic. Walk in the conference room, hundreds and hundreds of people, television lights, television cameras, it's on national TV. I didn't know that. <laughs> I walk down the aisle and come up on the stage, and there's a translator on either side of me. They introduce me, and there's this moment, you know naked before God and everybody. And uh, suddenly my mind let go. It, uh, uh, I guess it was all the pressure. 
in the hopelessness of the situation. <laughs> it just let go. And I stood there looking out at this audience, and all of a sudden I just went, Hey, and I started to move. Energy came, and I was just howling, you know. It was such a relief, I can't tell you. It was, I got ecstatic. The television cameras are grinding. And pretty soon, it was the right culture to do this in because this whole audience started doing it with me. <laughs> Hundreds of people, and they're all wailing and sounding at the top of their lungs. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> Letting go. It has its good aspects. The method, the method that we're practicing for letting go, that, that which makes it possible is called bare attention. It's, the, uh, uh, it's a quality of the mind that is the basis for, and the foundation of all spiritual discovery. It's the ability to see things as they actually are without any choosing, without comparing, without evaluating the situation, without projecting any expectations, no agenda, choiceless awareness. The ability to focus attention and see things without a story, to see into how it truly is. That bare attention that we're all learning about, and it takes a lifetime, of course, when you never become really a master at it, I think. It's always being perfected to be attentive without any history, to be attentive without any thought, without any agenda whatsoever. Hmm. That attention dissolves all holding and is the ultimate tool for generosity. That kind of attention concentrates the mind so strongly that concentration and relaxation become equal. Concentration is relaxation in that state. My friend Joseph Goldstein talks about bare attention a lot, and he, he likes to uh, illustrate it with a haiku that I think really says it. Poetry sometimes says thing says it so much better than blah 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 blah. The haiku is goes like this: the old pond, a frog jumps in, plop. The old pond, a frog jumps in, plop. Bare attention brings us alive and awake in the moment, in the here and now. It brings the mind to rest. It dissolves greed in the mind. It's the, the, the practice that we're doing here of mindfulness and concentration is responsible for the development of bare attention. 
one last bit here in, in our talking about letting go and generosity is that generosity of this kind really is preparation for dying. Letting go moment to moment in any sitting session is training for the actual time of totally letting go when death comes. It's the title of a poem by Mary Oliver. It's my favorite Mary Oliver poem. When death comes, like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as the field daisy and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does toward silence. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, when it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I've made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. I have a friend, a Sufi friend, who calls generosity, letting go, relaxing the self-contracted knot into the all-pervading current of vibratory life. <laughs> Isn't that a typical Sufi statement? <laughs> and as a way of closing this, this talk, another little story. My teaching, my greatest teaching in letting go came from my mother a few years ago. Not very many. My mother was a, um, a farm girl, uneducated. She didn't finish grade school. And uh, she grew up working in the fields in upstate New York. And she was a very frank and blunt person, not particularly warm-hearted, honest, salt of the earth, but a little bit harsh if, if you needed 
encouragement or you needed to be held. That didn't happen. An example of what she was like, when Jack Cornfield lived across the street from me and Tamales, one time she visited and, and Jack came to meet my mother and they were having a conversation and she made some cryptic, very blunt, cut through to the quick remark about something and that was quite funny. And um, he said, oh, I see where Robert gets his sense of humor. And she said, I never noticed he had one. <laughs> That's mom. So I, my daughter called me a few years ago and told me that she was dying. And uh, I knew that she had been ill. And, and uh, she said, my daughter said, Dad, you better go. You need to do this. And to tell you the truth, my inclination was, I don't want to. Because in the recent years, we had been somewhat estranged, and it wasn't really a, a, what I thought was a loving relationship. But of course, as you look back on those things, uh, it's possible to see them differently with time. But I, I went with my second, my oldest daughter to New York, and upstate New York, and she was in a, a home for elderly. She was 84. And I walked into the room where she was in bed, and she looked at me and she said, not hello, or I'm glad you came, or go away. Or She said, yeah, this is the worst ever. <laughs> this is the worst I've ever been through. And I realized she was really suffering. And this was no small thing for her to say this. So... I began touching her, putting my hands on her chest and on her abdomen for long periods of time, putting my hands on her forehead, holding her head. She was coming in and out of going in and out of consciousness. Every once in a while, she would wake and, and know I was there, and she would shake her head yes. I would get the, the information that this was good, this was helping. So I stayed there a long, long period of time. At one point, I laid down in the bed next to her and put my arms around her. And um, something happened between us that was nonverbal, that was a total letting go and a generosity of forgiveness that went both ways and it was unmistakable. And then, very near the end, she came into consciousness again and said, this is, so, this is so typical of her. She said, I'm going, you know. That's all. I'm going, you know. And I said, yes, Mom, I know you're going. And it's okay. You can leave. You did a good job. It's okay. We're all all right. You did a good job. You can go. You can go. You did fine. And she said, these were her last words, I did what I knew.
that's filled my heart ever since I did what I knew. What could be more true than that? What could be simpler than that? And that's what I hope for all of us in this practice, in being generous, being generous to ourselves. That we can reach a state in which it's possible to say, with absolute self-love and self-forgiveness, I've done what I know. Let's sit for a few minutes. walking meditation until the next sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.